Our alternate 100. Uh, we're kind of getting through these, um, which is nice to see. Thinking that we stalled quite badly earlier in the year, we're kind of making up for lost time now. Um, I've got Ed with me. How are you doing, sir? You all right? Uh, very well. Uh, looking forward to talking about these 10 and continuing our streak of actually recording these episodes. Yeah. Do you think we'll do these by the end of the year? I think so. Uh, I, I just recently read the book of Moneyball, and I think that we're entering that sort of stretch that the A's hit where they were able to actually win games. So we're hitting a stretch where we're actually recording episodes, and I think that that's a good place to be in. Yeah, and if we want to record 10 episodes, then where we really want to start is by recording episodes. Yeah, it's like, you know, getting on base, you know, is the important stat in baseball. The important stat in podcasts is recording episodes. Mm, Absolutely. And uh, what an episode we have for you this evening, ladies and gentlemen, we've got ten films uh, selected uh, by the criteria that you should all know by now, um, and we're going to get into them straight away. But first, uh, we need to hear uh, the jingle. Um, so here it is. The alternate one hundred. Okay, uh, first film we've got to talk about today um, is a very new one. Uh, well, very new. In regards to our list, it's uh, Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. What happened to you? Nothing. Do you want to tell us about it? I think I can handle this part myself. According to the statement, the light was green when the bus passed through the intersection? Yes. So you're saying she walked against the light? I know you feel a sense of responsibility about what happened, but you can't not do your homework and you can't throw away your scholarship because of it. Bus driver probably has a family to support. Do you remember me from the bus accident? It's a tragedy. You cannot bring her back. I'm talking about telling the accident investigators what really happened. But you already talked to them. I know that, but I lied. You're going to go home, you're going to do your homework, and I'm going to lose my job. And who's going to take care of my family? You? Um, someone probably will do at some point, Ed, write a book about the troubled history of Margaret. Um... Either way you look at it, either it's the, the cut that was re- released theatrically or the extended version, um, it's a magnificent film, isn't it? It is, yeah. For people who, who don't know the story of Margaret either the film or how it was made, uh, it started filming in, I believe, 2003 or 2004. It was Kenneth Lonergan's follow-up to his film, uh, You Can Count On Me, which was a kind of a critical hit, it got a bunch of Oscar nominations in 2000. And uh, he set out to make this big, sprawling drama uh, using the story of a young girl played by Anna Paquin who witnesses and arguably causes a fatal accident uh, and the trauma that that has on her and how it impacts the lives of her family and the bus driver who's involved in the the accident and things like that. And, you know, it's kind of a a metaphor for America post 9-11 and things like that. And it's a really powerful film but unfortunately it's also uh in the best possible way all over the place it's Mm. it's a a film that 
you know, had to be in the contract. It said that it had to be at least two hour, two and a half hours at most. Sorry, two and a half hours long, and Lonergan couldn't get it that that long. And then there were lawsuits over the final cut, and they brought in Scorsese and Thelma Shoemaker to re-edit it to get it down to the to the level. And I think the the final uh, length is something like. Two hours, twenty nine minutes, and fifty seven seconds. So they've got it right under the line. Oh yeah, uh, uh, you know as you do. <laughs> and mm. um, it ended up playing in theaters and was it was pretty much dumped because at that point no one no, no one involved seemed to want to pay any attention to it. But you know critics saw it and you know got the word out for it. Got it a, a wide ish release and got it a, a Blu Ray release with the fuller cut that Lonergan wanted to release. Uh, and it it was kind of saved from obscurity, which uh, is great because, as you say, it's a really powerful and intense and sort of beguiling film. It, it was such a surprise to see it dumped so unceremoniously, given some of the talent that's involved in that. You know, it's you could have thought that someone could have found some angle to market it, but instead it was just kind of plopped out and no one really mentioned it. Yeah, it, it really was kind of a terrible shame, and that's why the kind of underdog story of it, with people kind of championing, championing it and saying, this is a great film, people should go out and seek it out, and, and it should be given a chance to find an audience, was kind of this real uh, kind of cause for the critical community in 2011 when it finally came out, uh, and when it seemed really weird hearing a film in which people were criticising the American president and they were actually criticising Bush because it had been uh, so long since the film was shot. Mm. Um, what are the principal differences in the cut, um, apart from the obvious length considerations? I, I think it kind of focuses more on the various permutations of uh, the main character's grief uh, and, yeah, and it really just has a slightly... Uh, more languorous pace. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say that the original or the the theatrical cut is snappy because it is two and a half hours long. But I think it just kind of luxuriates in its world and kind of focuses on some of the side characters a bit more, uh, particularly like, you know, the the mother played by uh, Jay... Is it Jay Cameron Smith? Yeah, I think that sounds right. Uh, And... Uh, I think it just kind of delves a little more into some of the relationships that are, they are not kind of underwritten in the the theatrical version, but they do come across as a little bit kind of uh, more functional than they are in the longer cut. Right, okay. Um, You know, it's said that like uh, Scorsese and Thelma Shoemaker had to come on and kind of bail Kenneth Lonergan out, I suppose. Pretty good team to bring, uh, bring off the bench, isn't it? Yeah, they're they're good people to have as patrons, really. Because mm. Scorsese was an executive producer of You Can Count On Me, so there was that connection there. I kind of wonder how uh, how that kind of goes. Like, obviously Scorsese is an auteur. Mm. Uh, how he feels kind of coming in to fulfil a, a, you know, the studio's contractual obligation, and whether Lonergan's like, well, if anyone's going to do it, it may as well be Marty and Thelma. Yeah, I think that they're good. They're a good trump card to play, and I think that mm. for them, it probably felt like paying a you know paying a favor to a friend who clearly was kind of 
entangled in a lot of legal uh, difficulties and just creative difficulties of trying to take a film that is, you know, kind of formless and is a character study and also kind of a study of an entire swathe of the American population who at the time were, were dealing with their own with their own uh, trauma and their own kind of uh, personal uh, difficulties, you know, trying to encapsulate all that in a single film. Mm. You know, I think it probably seemed to them like the least they could do to kind of come in and, and help get the film out there in whatever form they could. Um, do you think that uh, time is going to cause people to reevaluate Margaret right in 10 years' time or will we be kind of talking about it any differently? I hope so. I think the the real kind of bellwether for that will be when we get to to twenty twenty and people start doing their lists of the best films of the decade. Uh, and I, I would hope that it shows up on a lot of those lists uh, then, because you know it's it's a film that could have completely sunk like a stone and just been a footnote for the careers of everyone involved. And the fact that you know we're talking about it, the fact that people at the time kind of really rallied around it, suggests that it is a film that needs to be sought out and to be kind of experienced. Yeah, and it does. So, um, you're on it. Um, the second film we've got on uh, today's list of ten uh, is a film we've talked about uh, previously um, and one that uh, perhaps should be considered outside of its its usual ghetto. Um, we're talking about Ken Loach's Kez. Get ready now, you. Skyving again, Guthrie. No, sir. Mr. Farvin has been talking to me. Oh, that was stimulating for him, wasn't it, lad? What does that mean, sir? Conversation, lad. What do you think it means? It means stimulating, sir. Stimulating, you fool. S-T-I-M-I-L-A-T-I-N-G. Stimulating. Well, I get ready. Two weeks late already. <laughs> you three, get down before I come and put you down. Um, when I say ghetto, I mean it's always talked about as being one of the best British films, um, but that that upsets me slightly. Is it because it's uh, without wanting to sound harsh, northern and a bit working class that perhaps it's not viewed in a way that maybe other films are. Possibly, yeah. I think it it definitely suffers from being lumped in with kind of British kitchen sink dramas. I mean, it, it is mm. that. You know, it is a very mm. kind of realist film and it's very focused on the minutiae of working class life and, and things that Ken Loach has explored pretty much throughout his entire career. But I think when people lump it in with that, with it, they kind of miss a lot of the more, not spiritual, but a lot of the kind of more elegiac qualities of it and the way that it, it stands in as a film that is kind of brutal in its depiction of the harshness of working-class existence and, but also is about the the escape of finding a passion and pursuing it and obviously the, the, the pain of how difficult that can be when the people around you don't appreciate it. Mm. And we talked about it before in the terms of um, being one of the best child performances of all time. Um, and since we did the episode, I mean, it's quite a while ago now, it's kind of middle of last year we talked about that. Um, I still haven't found anything better than David Bradley's performance. 
No, it's a film that, as we, we talked about, is kind of free of the any kind of affectation that you see with a lot of child performers, where they, they really play up to the camera. It's incredibly naturalistic without... But at the same time, he really does... When he needs to, he really hits the the dramatic beats, particularly sort of towards the end of the film when he has to play sort of genuine distress. Uh, it's It's really believable in a way that doesn't feel false and that doesn't feel melodramatic it just feels devastating mm. do you think you're kind of do you think people think about it uh, in any other way other than oh, it's a bit grim up north rather than it being essentially a love story about between a boy and a bird they probably think of it in terms of Bo Selector mm, that's yeah. a real shame yeah <laughs> that I think for a lot of people has has kind of overshadowed it and I think also in terms of it getting lumped in with films, it probably isn't helped that it's a film that tends to get shown a lot in schools mm. as a kind of a required viewing, you know, films about British cinema, as, as classes about British cinema or classes about, you know, the the book and, you know, the adaptation. And as as good as it is that I think a lot of kids do get to see Cares at a young age and get to see it as part of their education, it's very rare that anything that you encounter in school really kind of inspires you. You know, any books you read and have to analyse or any films you have to watch and analyse, it kind of takes the, the joy out of it. And there is, there's a lot of darkness in Kez, but there is a lot of kind of, let you say, like I said, you know, joy and that sense of escape, which uh, is something that kind of gets hurt a little bit when you have to sit there and dissect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife... Um, her first ever acting role on the stage was in a school performance of Kez where um, she was seen as the strongest candidate, uh, the strongest actor. Um, so they rewrote the, the, the role of Billy Casper to be a, a little girl. And um, recently we dug out the VHS. I'd never seen it before. She was, uh, she was spellbinding <laughs> in that. I think that I, I, I did say in this podcast and before I'd never seen a child performance as good as David Bradley's. She does run him very close. I have to say. <laughs> um, it is uh, magical. And if you can, uh, if anyone wants to watch the VHS of that, just give me a call. As long as you pay the postage, I'll uh, I'll send it over. Um, now our next film on our list, um, moving from uh, the kind of uh, grimy uh, milieu of Yorkshire. Uh, to the dusty, uh, dusty, dusty desert plains of uh, the Southwest America. Uh, we're talking about uh, Vin Vendor's majestic Paris, Texas. quite kind of important to me uh, in the sense that I was kind of like 14, 15 when I started getting into films. And when I say getting into films, 
I mean, I watched Aliens and Predator a lot. <laughs> uh, also, Stakeout for some weird reason. One of the three films I watched uh, an awful lot. Um, and then for some reason, uh, I watched Paris, Texas. I'm not really sure why or how I came across it. I think it must have been on television. Um, and I was completely kind of blown away by a film that is probably the opposite of Predator uh, and Aliens. Um, maybe not of Stakeout. Um, <laughs> but uh, a film that manages to capture the imagination of a young man, uh, such as myself. Um, yeah, it's 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 completely hypnotic uh, piece of work. And then I think as I, as I kind of um, went to university and started studying film, you kind of understand its place in kind of new German cinema and all that kind of caper. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it would it'd be fair to say uh, Vim Vendor's career peak um, and also the peak of that whole kind of movement um, of like new German cinema, it's it's probably that or Wings of Desire. And yeah, I, I prefer City of Angels. Uh, <laughs> the, re, the remake. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, those two do stand out as, as kind of pretty solid examples. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It is. I think it's it's a film that benefits from having an outsider directing it, someone who mm. isn't native to America because the film really captures the grandeur of Texas near the big wide open spaces, but also the strangeness of it and the idea of America as a place where it is possible to get lost uh, either physically or, you know, emotionally and spiritually as Harry Dean Stanton's character does. Uh, For people who don't know, uh, Paris, Texas is a film that stars Harry Dean Stanton in a rare uh, leading role as a, a man who, at the beginning of the film, is shown wandering through the desert carrying, I believe, a petrol can? Yeah, it's just a, big, it's just a bottle full of water, a and that's all he's got. Uh, and he's a man who has been missing for several weeks, and he comes back and he claims to have no memory of who he is, and so he gets taken to uh, in by his brother, and he is reunited with his young son, and they set out to find the uh, son's mother. And it's about a man who has had some sort of uh, either a mental breakdown or a genuine uh, case of amnesia who wandered out to the desert uh, and, and came back sort of profoundly changed and exploring the way in which he uh, that change manifests itself in his relationships with people in his life. And it, you know, it, it's very interesting as a film about. America is a place where people it, that is so vast that you kind of can completely lose yourself, but maybe also find yourself in some way as well. Mm. And it's that, and it's also not wanting to get too kind of a level film studies on you. Um, kind of all about generational uh, disconnect in Germany, uh, the kind of generations kind of separated by the, the World War Two, I believe they called it. Um, unable to kind of reconcile with a kind of a generation of now, and it's a quite a beautiful film to watch in that kind of context. Um, it's amazing in one way, um, kind of watching uh, Harry Dean Stanton and uh, his son try and reconnect. But the the kind of the the big centerpiece of the film, the kind of showstopper, as it were, is when they do finally meet. Uh, the mother who in the kind of the, one of 
the best scenes in all cinema, in my opinion, um, where uh, she finds this Natasha Kinski, she finds herself, um, she's working in a kind of a peep show booth, and Harry Dean Stanton has to kind of um, have this reunion with her, this really awkward reunion over the kind of phone between the booths, and it's this kind of long monologue, which is amazingly shot and beautifully written and just kind of immaculately performed. Um, and if anyone wants to kind of uh, boil down what you can do with mise-en-scene, uh, again, I don't want to get two A-level film studies on you, uh, and uh, two good actors uh, reading good dialogue, then you can just watch that. Yeah, that that whole sequence is amazing. And you kind of feel if that was the entire film, if it was just a series of meetings in a peep show booth between these two people who are, you know, one of them can't see the other and doesn't know who's on the other side of the glass and then slowly comes to realise who it is through their conversation, it mm. would still be an absolute masterpiece. And, you know, the fact that there is this broader mystery built around the film of, you know, who is this guy... What did he do that led him to wander out into the desert and everything? And, and, you know, why does he consider himself to be such a terrible person? Uh, is compelling in its own right and really fascinating. But in just pure kind of aesthetic pleasure, the scene of them, you know, communicating with each other that way is, you know, really compelling and really heartbreaking. And, you know, there's a reason why a shot from that sequence is the one that's often used on posters and things like that because it encapsulates so much of what the film's about. Yeah, and it's um, also great that you don't really get any real detail of what he did and what happened. You just get kind of hints in the dialogue of of, uh, of, of kind of what's gone wrong. And at the end... Uh, he can't quite. He, he still can't make the connection. But the only thing he can do is reconnect uh, his son with his mum, which is you know all he can do. He's he, you know he doesn't. The film doesn't give any kind of easy solutions, and they don't live happily ever after. Yeah, it's a very kind of pleasurable film to watch. It's not a film that you can. It's not a film that's kind of grim and un, unpleasant to watch, but it also does have things like suggesting what went on between them without saying it is, you know, very suggestive of a very dark situation and a very troubled uh, group of people. And I think that that it entrusts the audience with a certain degree of uh, agency to figure out what, you know, what is going on and who these people are. And it doesn't, like you say, it doesn't give easy answers, but it does pose tough questions in a way that kind of lulls you into a situation where you have to confront, you know, who these people are and what they've done to each other. Mm. Um, worth noting at the end here, just uh, how good the score is. Uh, Ry Kuda mm. does the score. Uh, it's pretty much entirely slide guitar, um, and it's kind of so evocative of that landscape. It's difficult to see kind of aerial photography without thinking of it now. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that that probably is one of the film's biggest in influences, is that any time, in the same way that you can't show an overhead shot of a city in the Middle East without having kind of the Muslim court prayer playing in the mm. background. You can't have shots of, you know, modern-day contemporary America without lots of slow slide guitar playing in the background. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is pretty amazing. And uh, I recommend seeing it on a big screen if you can. 
because uh, it truly does deserve to be seen that way. Okay, um, our next film is our only entry directed by Woody Allen. Um, and somewhat controversially, some might say, uh, we've gone for husbands and wives. What happened after the honeymoon was over? Did desire really grow with the years, or did familiarity cause partners to long for other lovers? Was the notion of ever-deepening romance a myth we had grown up on, along with simultaneous orgasm? The only time Rifkin and his wife experienced the simultaneous orgasm was when the judge handed them their divorce. Maybe in the end, the idea was not to expect too much out of life. Okay, Ed, why? Why have we done this? I think it's probably Woody Allen's best drama. I mean, it, it mm. does have some funny lines, but it is probably about as close as he got. That and interiors are probably the closest he got to directing pretty much straight-ahead dramas. And it's a film that is very insightful and very piercing about relationships that are falling apart, which obviously gained a lot of attention at the time because they were filming it at the time that his relationship with Mia Farrow fell apart. Uh, and it, but it, you know, it, it also stylistically, I think it's very interesting because it's one of the very few films that Alan made that was very heavily influenced by John Cassavetes. And I think mm. it's very interesting to see what is essentially a very urbane, sophisticated drama shot with this kind of jittery, nervous energy that you know you think of when you think of husbands or uh shadows or faces and things like that it's certainly it's it's weird that um when we when we kind of made this list husbands and wives was one of the first ones i put on so i wanted to have woody allen represented but we could have picked anything Mm. really because he's done so much and he's made so many great films um, and weirdly, Husbands and Wives was um, the first Woody Allen film I saw. Mm. So I had this kind of, uh, you know, build up of Woody Allen being this kind of great comedic genius. And Husbands and Wives uh, was, was was kind of my introduction to him, um, other than Ants, obviously. Oh yeah. Obviously. Uh, um, but yeah, um, it's got an intimacy uh, to his films that. Uh, that uh, husbands and wives has got an intimacy that you don't find in any of his other films, and I think there is that Casavetti's feel to it that it is uh, it seems much more kind of uh, kind of close up than than any of his other work, and and because it's not one of his kind of comedies, uh, there's not that kind of distance, that kind of ironic distance there either. He yeah, he also frees himself up visually from his usual style, which is very uh, static. Or, you know, the, the camera will be locked off and it will follow the characters around in very long takes. And he does have a lot of long takes in Husbands and Wives, but, you know, it is the camera kind of moves and interacts with the actors a bit more. And as you say, it gives it this sense of intimacy and this sense of, as the film goes on, it's kind of claustrophobia as you become trapped with these characters as they're their marriages are, you know, falling apart for various reasons. And it is like being, in the best possible way, it is like being trapped at a party where one of the, where a couple of the couples are having a, a huge raging argument and you can't escape. Mm. Like we said in our first episode, we well, we picked uh, one of the films was uh, When Harry Met Sally. Husbands and Wives has kind of almost that same feel but like just completely not funny 
uh, like all the the kind of get-togethers they have as couples and these kind of like Upper West Side kind of sophisticates, uh, and it feels like that when Harry met Sally take them to uh, a really dark place. Yeah, I think that the as you say the the expectations of Woody Allen as a humorist really kind of plays into the strengths of the film because you go in thinking that it's even if you hear that it's a drama you think well it'll still have some you know some witty repartee and there is some in mm. of that in that but like that and also crimes and misdemeanors which i think is is one of his best as well the interplay between the the clever dialogue and the kind of the rawness of the emotions really creates this kind of really uncomfortable but really compelling uh sense of of drama to the whole thing mm. I also kind of mention it in uh, in the same light as when Harry met Sally because it uses that same conceit, doesn't it, of like individual interviews with the characters, mm. um, which is again something of a of a departure. Yeah, it's also really interesting considering uh, Woody Allen's career in general because he never really used that style again. Uh, mm. He used it immediately afterwards for Manhattan Murder Mystery which is an interesting film to watch if you want to see what a light-hearted fast looks like shot with uh, John Cassavetti's style. Uh, mm. And I can tell you, it's weird. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's kind of jarring. But it is, uh, it is really uh, fascinating to see this kind of isolated bit of experimentation. Well, he's a, he's a, a director who experimented with lots of different styles and often ate a lot of his favourite filmmakers in his work. So, mm. but it's interesting that he never really returned to that style again, and there's there's not a lot in his work prior to that that really suggests it, except for maybe some of the more freeform moments in Annie Hall. So it's interesting mm. to see him adopting this style very briefly and then kind of shrugging it off after a couple of films. Yeah, he does it a little bit in the Sweet and Lowdown. Mm. Um, they have interviews, but the the conceit there is that they're trying to uh, have interviews with real people. Uh, trying to talk about a, a character who was not real. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a mockumentary in that sense, so not quite the same thing. I think Sweet and Lowdown probably would have been uh, close to second choice for Woody Allen uh, if we're going to pick one. That would have been mine. What do you think yours would have been? You're, you're a bit of a, an Allen enthusiast. Uh, I probably would have gone for Crimes and Misdemeanors. I think the, the, those were the two that kind of jumped to mind. Uh, right. And I think the, that and, yeah, Sweet and Low, Lowdown's pretty amazing uh, i think that and husbands and wives have a very strong case for two of the best films of the 90s uh, mm. do, you, do you think we'll ever be in a position to do 100 greatest woody allen films uh if he keeps going i mean his parents both uh lived into their hundreds i believe and he's got another 30 years on that so if he really mm. keeps up his uh, his work rate then he probably could He's at 40-odd mm -hmm. now, so at the very least, I think he can get to 60. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, we can just stick all the films that he's in, like Ants, um, which would have a strong case. Scenes at a mall. Yeah, in top ten. Uh, Playing Against Sam, that's another one he's in, but he didn't direct. The Front, that's a very good one. I think that's, pro yeah. that's probably his best uh, performance in that one, uh, as an actor. It's very uses a lot of his strengths greatly. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I think we're getting distracted by Woody <laughs> Allen. That's 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 we've said for ages to do a Woody Allen special, um, but that time is not now. Um, the next film we're going to talk about another British film, um, 
and one from uh, Ealing Studios, but not perhaps one you'd expect. We're talking about um, Dead of Night. I knew you wouldn't leave me, you go. I knew you'd come back. Not for long, my boy. Not for long. You're going to stop in jail for years and years and years and years. That wouldn't suit me. But you'll you tell them the truth. You'll you tell them it wasn't my fault. What sort of dummy do you think I am? Um, whilst uh, Ealing did have a dark streak, we could say some of their films are quite kind of blackly funny. Uh, kind Hearts and Coronets and Lady Killers immediately spring to mind. Uh, Dead of Night stands out uh, as a bit of a contradiction to the rest of their output because um, it's a straight horror film. It's a but it's a, a portmanteau horror film, as in four different directors directing four different tales held very loosely together by a kind of overarching structure. Now, if you hear the words portmanteau in horror film, uh, I don't know about you, Ed, but my kind of testicles kind of shrink up into my body, and I think this is going to be possibly the worst thing uh, ever, because I've seen some awful portmanteau horror films. They they're pretty much are generally dreadful. The worst being that I can think of, Body Bags, uh, which involves uh, John Carpenter opening body bags and finding out how different people died. And we kind of have four different stories about, you know, dreadful things like Mark Hamill getting a uh, fake eye off a serial killer and murdering Twiggy. Uh, But again, we're talking about the wrong film here. Dead of Night is the best portmanteau horror film. Why? I think it's one that has a uniformity of tone that a lot of portmanteau horror films struggle with. Uh, I think of something like, you know, recently there, but there's been a revived interest in it with things like VHS uh, mm. and uh, the ABCs of Horror, which are films that, because they're multiple directors and they have a very loosely defined uh, framing device, they can kind of all, they kind of go all over the shot and some of them are more creepy than others, some are like really violent and gory, but because of the era in which Dead of Night was made, the 1940s, they can't go over the top with the horror to with the gore so there's none that are kind of just gross out splatter they all have to be built on suspense but they also all have even the scariest one which is undoubtedly the one with the ventriloquist gummy, dummy and michael redgrave which is mm. just horrifying because dummies are creepy um it's they all kind of have that wry kind of british stiff up, stiff upper lip kind of sense of humour to them uh, running in the background and I think that consistency even though it's from different directors because they're all under the Ealing banner and Ealing has a certain uh, reputation of the kind of films that they make I think that that allows them all to be of, of a certain quality and to not feel as if you're just watching a bunch of people fucking about and kind of hitting they all have to uh, conform to a certain aesthetic and it really kind of works this kind of funny but also creepy gothic uh, uh, sense sensibility yeah and it's also tied together fantastically by the central thread which is a group of strangers meeting in a country house and, and kind of talking and it's not until the end that it's kind of obvious why they're there and what's happening and when you do hit that point it's not just uh, a kind of comedy bookend it's actually quite chilling mm. uh which is following the, the ventriloquist dummy uh, segment, which is the last segment, um, uh, um, kind of it has like a double whammy to end. Um, why do you think they never did any more horror films? 
I think it was just uh, hard to kind of maintain that level of uh, suspense and mystery over the length of the whole film. I think the reason why Dead of Night works so well is because they are all snappy. You know, they get in, they get out, they give you a few scares and then the film's over. And mm. I think that that's the sort of thing that would be very difficult unless it was in the hands of someone who's immensely uh, skilled. And also, I think they just had such huge success with dark comedies immediately afterwards that it probably felt uh, it made more sense to follow that vein than to try and keep churning out, you know, compelling horror movies. And, you know, even more so once Hammer kind of started coming in and started really knocking out the park in terms of British horror. Uh, they they uh, found a niche for themselves, and they just kind of kept on with it. Um, keep, even though we haven't got a Martin Scorsese film in this 10, uh, I'll kind of mention him for the second time, uh, but he ranks it as uh, one of his scariest horror films of all time. I can definitely see that, especially when you consider his age and you know he's of the age where he would have been very very young when that started playing in america and as good as it is as an adult and it is just kind of really a, a, a classy you know wonderfully constructed a series of great horror shorts as a kid that's the sort of stuff that will shit you up yeah there is a kind of uh like you mentioned uh vhs is also the abcs of death um and kind of they're both getting kind of multiple sequels um despite the fact that most portmanteau horror films are shit what keeps bringing people back to them i think as far as directors go i think it's the sense of being able to experiment and to do something in a very short very constrained period of time that doesn't require kind of the heavy lifting of having to do a consistent or, or, or larger narrative it's just a case for them to kind of flex their muscles and do something uh for fun i think for audiences it's the sense it, again i think it has that same kind of sense that you'll watch it and you'll think you know maybe not all of these will be great but maybe one of them will be really cool and mm. uh you know I, I saw the first vhs and it has that same it does feel like that there's some uh there's some installments in that one which are pretty shitty and aren't very uh interesting but there's a couple in there that are you know, really interesting and do make at least some decent use of the whole found footage VHS aesthetic that they all use. And uh, I think that that is the main appeal, is the sense of being able to see something that you may not see in a feature-length horror film, because if you're doing a feature-length horror film, you have to kind of space out the scares in a narrative, whereas if you are forced to kind of confine them all to 15 minutes then it can be more impactful if it works. Mm, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it might explain why they're all so poor, mm. uh, generally. Um, but, yeah, Dead of Night, worth seeing. Um, definitely worth seeing in context of the other Ealing films as well, if you find yourself with a, with a spare Sunday afternoon uh, to burn. Um, next film on the list is our second entry from Jonathan Demi after he had uh, Stop Making Sense. Uh, in episode one um here we come with his uh kind of modern take on the screwball comedy something wild let me guess sometimes you don't pay for your lunch or maybe you steal the occasional candy bar or newspaper you're a closet rebel uh, yeah modern take on screwball comedy probably sums it up uh um it's kind of uh uh, one of those films where 
uh, a character is kind of swept along and uh, unlike the kind of screwball comedies of the past, it doesn't end in kind of, or does, it's not based around a series of hilarious misunderstandings. It's uh, based around stuff that's incredibly violent and scary. It, it is, yeah. The story for people who don't know is about a, a kind of button-down yuppie kind of character played by uh, Jeff Daniels who meets this kind of freewheeling, uh, three-spirited girl played by uh, Melanie Griffiths who... Uh, you know, he he's attracted to her and she says, you know, why don't you just kind of come with me? And uh, they go off and they have uh, sex in hotel rooms and they just kind of go off on this kind of little road trip together. And as you say, it, it kind of starts out very lighthearted in that way and they do some kind of minor crimes like stealing uh money from a liquor store run by a man doing a hilariously over the top english accent <laughs> um mm-hmm. yeah uh and uh it, it kind of goes along like that and then about halfway through it has a it, it's it's what's uh paul thomas anderson coined as a gear shift movie which is a film that starts out as one thing and then halfway through becomes uh something else and that is when uh, a young ray liotta making his feature film debut shows up as uh, someone from uh Menly Griffiths uh, passed, and uh, the uh, the result turns it from what is you know a really entertaining comedy into a actually quite dark and weird comedy. Yeah, dark and weird just kind of about sums it up. It's a perfect film for people who want to see people's careers encapsulated in ninety minutes because mm. you've got kind of Jeff Daniels who's kind of like this kind of lovable kind of goof uh, that's kind of you know just a bit kind of straight laced, but uh, you know gets kind of pulled out of his comfort zone and then you've got uh, uh, Melanie Griffiths who's all like dangerous and sexy and then you've got Ray Liotta who's also really dangerous and sexy and then it just all ends in this kind of big violent mess yeah it is a uh, it's also really interesting in terms of the year that it was made because you know it comes in the middle of the 80s you know the height of uh, Reaganomics and it seems to be a film on some level that's about the uh, it's kind of a reaction to the attempts to shut out American weirdness and to kind of conform. Uh, and, you know, it's all about, as they go along, they all encounter these, you know, different sort of kind of freaks and burnouts, like, you know, old hippies and things like that. These kind of elements of American society that seem to be trying to be forgotten about in the sort of the Reagan era. And it's a wonderful celebration of the kind of the dark, weird heart of America, while at the same time kind of saying that, you know, there is real danger there as well. And I think it's a film that, in a very light-hearted, very entertaining way, kind of makes a very uh, serious point about the the dominant kind of culture at the time. It reminds me, uh, you know, the joke in Arrested Development where uh, Job gets married to Job's wife uh, through an escalating series of bears. <laughs> it seems like their that entire relationship was based on on the film Something Wild. Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely has that that feel, and uh, the dares uh, get quite uh, like you know. I don't really kind of want to spoil the film, but it does get to a point where they can't really go much further than uh, outright violence, and that mm. the the moment when that kind of suddenly happens is a really kind of shocking turn. Especially, like I think it's less shocking now because everyone knows who Ray Liotta is. And he has a, a kind of an established persona as someone who, you know, is is quite unnerving. Uh, 
But if you see him in, like, if you consider where he was in his career and that, he'd done some TV. He was in the TV version of Casablanca from the early 80s. So he, wow. yeah, so he was someone who didn't really have an established persona. And when he shows up, he's just kind of this, like, good-looking guy who's got a big, like, wide smile, and he seems to be very chummy. And then just suddenly he's talking to Jeff Daniels in the car and he just suddenly turns on a dime and becomes really quietly menacing. And I think that uh, that is something that's kind of been lost now, that surprise at the idea that he could not be uh, a violent, terrifying person. Uh, but, you know, it, it, even knowing who, you know Raviotta's reputation now, it still is really effective when he turns from being a guy who seems to be just out for a good time to someone who clearly has a, a dark and ulterior motive. It's um, notable that uh, it kind of came after Stop Making Sense because Jonathan Demme had kind of between kind of 1980 and kind of 91 had a pretty kind of impeccable career. I mean, maybe not kind of perfect, but uh, pretty much everything he did was interesting. Yeah, because you've got that. You've got uh, Married to the Mob, which I think is a very underrated comedy and one of the really uh, great performances by uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in that. Obviously, it kind of peaks with uh, Silence of the Lambs, which is, mm -hmm. you know, critically and commercially far and away his kind of most significant film. But, yeah, he was a director who uh, was really interesting because he was taking films that had very kind of mainstream appeal and then bringing, you know, his own idiosyncrasies to them and his own kind of personal stamp, which I think he clearly develops as someone from the, the Roger Corman film uh, uh, school. Here's a question. Um, is Something Wild the prototype Manic Pixie Dream Girl movie? It does have a little bit of that, but I think that it engages with the, the character a lot more fully and kind of investigates the reasons for why she acts the way that she does, as opposed mm. to presenting her as a kind of ideal without any kind of depth, which I think a lot of those subsequent films uh, kind of treat them as, and certainly a lot of the modern iterations of the character. Yeah, uh, yeah, there is much more to that. Like, you do get much more of a sense of her past, especially when she takes uh, Jeff Daniels, who she only met the day before, uh, to her mum's house to pretend that he's her husband, mm. and they have a kid on the way. Yeah, and which you know, I mean, I've been on some awkward first dates, but I mean that would take the cake. Yeah, I think it also is. Uh, it's also interesting that uh, the way they treat the character is they do make her seem like she is a lot of trouble, as opposed to just being kind of like ah, quirkily charming, you know. Which is, I think, what a lot of films that we think of, you know, the kind of Cameron Crowe uh, influenced. I think there is a, a real sense that she is just a huge amount of trouble for Jeff Daniels' character, but Jeff Daniels is also so intoxicated by her and so uh, in love with the kind of the wildness of her and, you know, what she promises that obviously his life as kind of corporate Wall Street guy doesn't really offer, that he uh, he can't really turn away as, you know, I think it, it creates a compelling reason why he would put up with the trouble that she represents. Mm. Totally. Um, yeah, a great film. Um, everyone, check it out. Um, next film we're going to talk about, uh, a film we have mentioned briefly, 
uh, in the past. Uh, film that is kind of uh, often on the fringes of those kind of best of lists, but never right up there. And uh, in my opinion, it really should be. Um, it's uh, the biting uh, satire, uh, The Sweet Smell of Success. Are you an actor, Mr. Falco? That's what I was thinking. Are you, Mr. Falco? Well, how did you guess it, Miss James? He's so pretty, that's how. Mr. Falco, let it be said at once, is a man of 40 faces, not one. None too pretty. And all deceptive. You see that grin? That's the, uh... That's the charming street urchin face. It's part of his helpless act. He throws himself upon your mercy. He's got a half dozen faces for the ladies. But the one I like, the really cute one, is the quick, dependable chap. Nothing he won't do for you in a pinch. So he says. Mr. Falco, whom I did not invite to sit at this table tonight, is a hungry press agent and fully up to all the tricks of his very slimy trade. Um, we started this whole alternate 100. One of the first films we talked about was uh, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. Mm. And we talked about that as a media satire and that being pretty on the nose for when that was made. Well, you could say that about Sweet Smell Success to the kind of nth degree. Yeah, you, you definitely could. It's really kind of uh, incisive and cutting uh, dissection of tabloid culture and the idea of gossip rags being able to, and gossip colonists being able to make and break careers by what they write and the... Uh, the flip side of that being the kind of cloying desperation of the agents who want to get their clients mentioned in those columns. Uh, and, and kind of it does it all with kind of a, a wit and a verve that is, uh, you know, makes it very entertaining whilst at the same time painting this kind of picture of a world that is kind of really seedy and dark and weird. Mm. It's considering when it was made, uh, kind of this is kind of pre-modern cinema we could say it was 1957 um uh it manages to get away with an awful lot yeah it, it definitely does a lot in terms of uh you know suggesting of people's personal scandals and sex and uh abuse and things like that it is very even though it is a, a satire and i think it is at times very very funny it is incredibly biting and incredibly hard-edged and hard-nosed in a way that uh, you, uh, you you kind of think that you could only get away with if you were Bert Lancaster and uh, you were really pushing for that film to be made in the uh, in the image that you had in your mind of how the film was going to turn out. Yeah, um, you mentioned Bert Lancaster there. The character he plays, J.J. Hunsecker, is uh, truly monstrous mm. in, in a way that... Um, you know, he obviously draws the line at kind of cannibalism, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, uh, one of cinema's great villains in a kind of uh, Burt Lancaster-style package without being truly evil. He's definitely diabolical. He is, yeah. He, he knows how to manipulate people around him and to use his influence as a, uh, you know, as a, as a gossip columnist to get exactly what he wants from the people around him. And he has... Uh, I would say zero scruples or perhaps these 0.1% scruples. You know, he's about as close to a completely callous person as you'll find. And, mm. you know, I think 
the fact he's played by Burt Lancaster, who is, you know, a, a kind of a very traditional movie star in some ways, and who has that basic kind of uh, charisma and charm to him, makes him all the more monstrous, because you initially see him and you don't think, oh, he can't be that bad. And then as the film goes along, you suddenly realise, oh, he's actually far worse than I could have even possibly imagined. <laughs> and that's when you consider that, you know, he's being paired opposite Tony Curtis, who is playing an absolute sleazebag. And, you know, when mm. the film starts, uh, you wouldn't expect that, you know, by the end of it, you'd be sympathetic. or Well, maybe not sympathetic, but you would have more sympathy for Tony Curtis's character. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't quite go the way you think it would. Uh with your kind of allegiances there. It's definitely, um, I think it's probably my favourite Tony Curtis performance. Yeah, I'd say that. Um, yeah. Although, I, I very much do enjoy his performance within a performance in Some Like It Hot when he plays Cary Grant. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like a film in itself. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, definitely one of his finest moments um, and a wonderful piece of work. Um, the next film uh, we're going to talk about is, uh, well, I think it might be a candidate for the bleakest film on, on our list. Um, it is uh, The Vanishing. Je m'appelle Raymond Lemorne. Je suis sociopathe et claustrophobe. Je n'ai jamais trompé ma femme. Ah. Yavi, Pierre Bouchon, s'il te plaît, hein, Pierre Yeah, The Vanishing, a Dutch uh, kind of horror thriller um, from 1987, I want to say. Um, a very simple story about a man who kind of stops at a motorway, kind of rest stop or kind of petrol station, and his girlfriend disappears. And then uh, after kind of frantically trying to search for her, um, he receives communication from a mysterious person saying, I know what happened to her, and you can find out all about it. Uh, and from there, it gets really, really dark. And uh, I might say probably the ending of any film that leaves me feeling hollow and shaken and empty uh, and generally having a dim view on humanity. Yeah, there's not a lot of laughs in The Vanishing. <laughs> yeah. uh, the only laugh you can really get from it is the fact that the the original title is Sporloos, which at mm -hmm. least is fun yeah. to say. It sounds funny, yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that's the that's the 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 most you can really get from it. It is a great film about. I think Mark Komodo said this about the banality of evil, because mm. once you, you you kind of think, oh, you know, something really horrible has happened. And it's been committed by this absolute monster, and the person who's committed it is a monster. But the way that he's presented in the film he is a sort of a horribly ordinary monster. You know, he's a guy with a family uh, who uh, really kind of does this awful thing for, to test himself as mm -hmm. a kind of dispassionate experiment in what it is possible for a person to do and to see if he can do it, uh, which is uh, just really, really horrifying because it is, <laughs> it is just really about a normal person thinking what could what if and kind of taking that what if scenario to a utterly kind of bleak and hopeless place uh, everyone go see it it's great <laughs> yeah i mean i mean it has recently 
either been released on Criterion or is uh, coming out on Criterion. Yeah, I think it's out um, now, yeah. Right, okay. Um, everyone get it. If you don't know where that film goes, uh, then I'd recommend going on that journey, uh, even though, again, you will feel, like I said, hollow, empty, and have a dim view of humanity mm. at the end. Um, it's, a, it's a really compelling... It's similar to Something Wild. It's a very compelling... Uh, gear shift movie in that it starts out as being a a mystery that's very kind of eerie because there's no kind of hint as to what's happened you just know that this woman has disappeared and it kind of feels a little bit like uh uh Leclise, is it the antonioni film about the woman who just disappears or my sure. yeah or, or uh it's the other one whose name i can't remember but basically there's an antonioni film that's kind of a similar idea but there, the disappearance is never explained, and in the vanishing, it is explained to kind of a terrify in a terrifying way. Uh, but you know, it's just that kind of sense of not knowing, of uncertainty, of thinking what could possibly have happened, and of of watching this poor man trying to figure out what happened. You know, did she did she leave him? Did he uh, did did she just kind of fall down and hurt herself did did you know try to think of all these possible permutations and then suddenly halfway through it kind of it, it confronts you with the person who did it and in a very interesting way you know it doesn't kind of save it for a last act reveal it's like pretty much the halfway point of the film it's mm. like you meet the guy and they have conversations and they talk about you know his motivations at length and it just kind of lays all this stuff out in a really dispassionate way uh, and then, you know, in order to kind of build up to its final moments, which are, you know, kind of, and, and that kind of, that structure and that slow methodical process is really, you know, kind of, it, it's really heartbreaking to watch because you understand where the guy, the the the, the guy who's looking for his, his girlfriend is coming from. And you know why he would be willing to take the the ultimate risk that he does take, uh, uh, which makes it all the more kind of terrifying. Yeah, um, that kind of whole banality of evil thing um, brings to mind a film that uh, kind of slipped through the net a couple of years ago. The, the film, the Austrian film, Michael. Oh yeah, um, it has a very similar feel to that. Uh, um, that's a really great film. I recommend anyone. Uh, watch Michael. Uh, if you're in the mood for like a two-hour paedophile drama, uh, then sure, go for it. It's awesome. That's livened up um, by a performance of Sonny. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's very dark. Very good. Um, I'll probably go out on a limb here and say that The Vanishing um, has the... Uh, is the kind of dubious honour of being the film on this list with the worst remake uh, because they remade it in Hollywood, because obviously, you know, they take these great foreign, funny foreign films, don't they? And they say, well, we'll make them in Hollywood, and we'll, uh, you know, change the ending, so it'll be, fun, like, kind of feel good. And that's exactly what they did with one of the bleakest films of all time. It was the same director as well, which makes it even more heartbreaking. They made it in uh, uh, with uh, Jeff Bridges, I think, was in it, and I think Kiefer Sutherland's in mm. it, uh, and Sandra Bullock is the girlfriend. Um, and at the end, it's got a happy ending, like the complete opposite of what happens in the original Dutch one. Um, don't see that. It's fucking awful. Yeah, the the best uh, evisceration of the remake I've ever heard is, uh, I think it was on the AV Club, they did a list of like terrible remakes. 
by the people, the same directors, and they described it as being the real-life equivalent to the film that gets made in Robert Altman's The Player. Uh, yeah. For anyone who hasn't seen it, The Player has this running uh, uh, thread in it where Rich D. Grant plays a director who wants to make a film all about uh, the death penalty in America and how he, he when he starts the film, he's talking about how he wants to end with uh, an innocent person being... Uh, being executed and then tim robbins as the producer kind of slowly point pushes him away from that and you see at the end of the film the uh the final version of the film which ends with bruce willis kind of striding into the gas chamber and lifting out the the woman that's meant to be executed and giving her a kiss and walking off into the sunset uh, and the vanish- Do you remember who plays who plays that uh that that, that woman is it julia roberts it's jurors yeah yeah and it, and it, I was trying to think, it, I knew it was some huge star from the time that just shows up for one little scene. And uh, she's, that that's perfect casting for kind of uh, a terrible, uh, ideologically corrupt uh, version of the film that they want to make in that film. Mm. It's great that the bit in the player where uh, Richard E. Grant's pitching it and he's just like, and she dies and no one can save her because that's, what happens? And then <laughs> the, literally the last thing you see is uh, is uh, Bruce Willis kicking over from the door of the gas chamber and uh, pulling a kind of uh, a lifeless body out that slowly comes back to life and they seal it with a big kiss. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what the remake of The Banishing is like. Um, I think we should all just pretend that it never happened. Yeah. Um, uh, or, or, yeah. or you should go and watch Arlington Road, which is a good yeah. example of a very, very bleak film starring, starring uh, Jeff Bridges that has a hopeless ending. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah. I always were kind of. I saw Arlington. This is a, a diversion, but we'll uh, keep it in. Um, Arlington Road is a film that I watched when I was kind of younger, kind of maybe just when it came out or just after it came out. And I thought, oh, that was really great. And then when I got a bit older, I kind of thought, oh, that can't have been good. I thought a lot of stuff was great back then. Um, and then I watched it. and I was like, man, that is actually really fucking good. Yeah, I remember watching that really late at night one time, and just kind of thinking. As you're going along, you know, this is a really compelling thriller. And then it gets to the end, and you're just kind of sad for days. Mm. <laughs> it's hard not to watch the end of Arlington Road and just be left feeling bereft. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But you all must kind of go through it. So we're going to recommend a lot of films that make you feel great. Um, so these are kind of part of the journey. The next film, the penultimate film, is not one of those films, unfortunately. <laughs> um, we're talking about uh, another one of my favourite films. Uh, of all time, it's John Sayles' Lone Star. Muchacho, más cerveza, por favor. Más cerveza, por favor. Yeah, that buddy was a cool breeze. Charlie Wade were known to put quite a few people in the ground. And your daddy gets eyeballed, eyeballed with him. We made our pickup at Roderick's place. Nobody's seen hiding the hair of him since. He went missing the next day, along with $10,000 in county funds from the safe to jail. Never heard from him again. Uh, John Sales, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a kind of frequently referred to as the kind of the godfather of kind of modern independent film, even though it's kind of a bit of a nonsense if you consider that John Cassavetes was kind of doing that shit ages ago. But he kind of started in the early 80s and kind of independently produced uh, kind of films kind of dialogue heavy uh quite not heavy hitting i suppose but you know socially aware films uh, things like return of the sokorka seven and liana and then kind of quite odd comedies with a good deal of social commentary and things like brother from another planet 
Um, but he was kind of unique in the sense that he kind of funded the films mostly by himself, kind of doing kind of script writing jobs. He would kind of uh, be a pen for hire, as it were, and raise the money that way, uh, and kind of just kind of keep control of his his own projects and kind of arguably his best film. Um, and I will argue that it might just be his best film. Uh, is Lone Star, a film from uh, 1995, uh, which is a kind of multi-generational murder mystery uh, mixed with, uh, like I say, one of his preoccupations, kind of social commentary that's, that kind of investigates injustice across uh, racial lines uh, and social divides. And Lone Star really is probably the most uh, fun example, I say fun, uh, <laughs> the most... Uh, engaging example of of his kind of key preoccupations, I guess. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Uh, before we started doing this, I hadn't seen uh, Lone Star, but I knew that it was one that uh, you loved a lot, and I knew that it was one you'd be uh, suggesting for this, so I watched it. And uh, I have to say, I was quite blown away by it. I thought that it was kind of the closest that the 90s came to a film like Chinatown, mm. a film that is both a really compelling mystery about, you know, the this body that gets discovered from the that's been uh, missing since i think the 60s or the 70s uh, it's a, mm-hmm. a sheriff who had been who had disappeared for years and people just thought he left town and it turns out he was killed and then uh, chris cooper who plays the current uh, sheriff and the son of the previous sheriff who in flashbacks is played by matthew mcconaughey uh, in the initial peaks of his uh, of his powers before he kind of started slacking off a little bit for a decade um mm-hmm. Uh, that starts to investigate this and, and uncovers kind of stories about his family and uh, things about the the town that he's grown up in, uh, and it is like you say, it is it is hugely compelling as a mystery, but it also does these this wonderful examination of life in a kind of a Texas border town and what it means for the immigrants who live there uh, and their relationship with the people there and how injustice and uh, racism kind of permeates every factor of, of life in this place. In, in the 90s, when the kind of multi-stranded narrative uh, was kind of du jour, um, John Sales had been doing that for quite so long anyway, um, that it kind of, it never feels like it's done to kind of, just kind of complicate the story with an unnecessary layer. Every single character in that, whether it's uh, kind of um, uh, Hispanic kind of restaurant owner who's, who's secretly kind of helping uh, immigrants across the border, or whether it's the sheriff, or whether it's the old uh, sheriff's deputy who is kind of acts as the framing device for the flashbacks, or whether it's uh, you know the kind of um, uh, the military commander and his son who's not interested. They're all part of this kind of tapestry that he weaves so beautifully. Uh, and I mean, I say it's probably his best film. Like he has got kind of three kind of bona fide masterpieces on his his resume. This is one of them. The other one is probably Mate One, uh, the kind of mining drama, and the other one is City of Hope, uh, which is a kind of an amazing film about uh, kind of corruption in New York. Um, I'd recommend all of his films because even his bad ones, and he has made some bad ones, are pretty interesting. And he's he, he's definitely a director that. I certainly feel passionately about kind of the fact that he's very rarely taught about, um, but he's got such an incredible body of work. Yeah, I think that his insistence on being outside the system so much is probably plays a big part in that because mm. he is someone who 
is so determined to make the films that he wants uh, that it's kind of hard for people to catch on. I think what why one of the reasons why Lone Stars works so well is it does have this kind of more crowd pleasing aesthetic, which is that it's a it's a murder mystery that then uh, uses that to explore kind of much deeper themes of of American life. Whereas I think some of his other ones, because they they don't have that kind of genre thing going through the centre of it, that is, that kind of prevents people from uh, engaging with them. He, he actually made a film last year that I watched uh, called Go for Sisters, which is uh, kind of the same sort of thing. It's a mystery about uh, a woman, uh, about two women looking for someone who, who went missing. Uh, and it's, that's a very good one that makes a lot of things about the it makes a lot of big points about the immigrant experience and about people searching for redemption in a very harsh world that mm. uh, it does a lot of the same sort of things that Lone Star does perhaps not as uh, compellingly because it doesn't have that sense of being part of a rich tapestry that Lone Star sort of beautifully has but uh, that's that's another one that I think people would check out of his recent work that is is really strong um, also, just to connect the dots, um, John Sayles does act from time to time, and he's in Something Wild, uh, he is. the film we mentioned earlier. Yeah, he plays the, the motorcycle cop. Yeah, um, he and John Waters in consecutive scenes, which are quite yeah. nice little cameos. You John Waters in you, Jonathan Demi Bingo, you've got Charles Napier, John Waters, Kenneth Art, just tick them off. They're all in, <laughs> they're all in Something Wild. Uh, but yeah, Lone Star, if you're going to start anywhere with John Sayles, uh, that is a great place to start. And if you're really kind of trying to dig deep, then I'd watch Liana. That's also pretty amazing. Uh, Passion Fish is pretty good. Um, I could probably talk ages about his films. Eight Men Out. Um, it's very good. Eight Men Out's fantastic. Limbo is a really great... Have you ever seen Limbo? It's like a, a weird experiment, like a narrative experiment. Uh, no, I've not um, seen that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the most literally named film of all time. <laughs> but I won't say anything more about that. Um, just have to watch it. And kind of enjoy. Um, his films often feature Chris Christopherson as well, which Lone Star does, and I've always got time for Chris Christopherson. Um, Charles's films always always have great casts of kind of awesome character actors where they kind of get their best work, and Lone Star is just riddled with them. Um, so yeah, check it out if you can. Uh, annoyingly, not available on DVD in this country mm. to kind of import it, and you know, not particularly well served by uh, on demand either. So uh, yeah, however you get hold of it make sure you do okay had a couple of dark films bleak films in this list let's end this episode with uh which are probably a contender for the the daftest film <laughs> uh on our on our hundred um we're talking about uh the uh cinema masterpiece uh that is caddyshack so i jump ship in hong kong and i make my way over to tibet and i get on as a looper at a course over there in himalayas a looper? A looper. You know, a caddy, a looper. Jack. So I tell him I'm a pro jack. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. The 12th son of the Lama. The flowing robes, the grace, bald. Striking. So I'm on a first tee with him. I give him the driver. He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter, the Lama. Long into a 10,000-foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga, galunga. Gunga, gunga, la gunga. 
So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know? And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Um, it's pretty fucking funny, isn't it, Kelly Jack? It is. I think it's, it's a, a, quite high up there as one of the most purely entertaining films ever made. Certainly one of the most purely entertaining that uh, Harold Ramis was involved with. Mm. Uh, the late Harold Ramis. Uh, I think it, it was his... Either his debut or one of his very early films. And I remember hearing an interview of him where he was a little bit dismissive of it because I think he felt that it's kind of very improv-heavy nature kind of made it feel very ill-formed and i think that it's a film that they shaped a lot in the kind of the filming of it and realizing which characters were more fun to hang out with uh and i I think there's some truth to that it's a very kind of formless film that just in the last half hour decides it's going to be about a golf tournament Mm -hmm. but those kind of digressions are so funny and it's so much fun to kind of watch bill murray going around trying to kill gophers uh animatronic gophers uh it's just it is just kind of a sheer sheer joy it's such a fun film to watch um i will kind of ruin kind of a spoiler for the rest of the alternate alternate 100 this is the only film on our list that stars rodney dangerfield um and uh, sorry i'm just having a mental check uh yeah he's not in any of the other films we've got coming up back to school Um, didn't make it through the final ballot no, it was like 103, 104. <laughs> it just didn't quite make the cut. Um, but yeah, it, he he's kind of like uh, hangover, isn't he, from the old school comedy days. But he's having a fucking blast in that film. Yeah, I think the, the thing that always makes me laugh is uh, just when he's on the golf course and he has a radio built into his, uh, into his golf bag and he just turns it on and starts dancing like a fucking loon. And he has just the weirdest body, body movements imaginable. He's clearly someone who is just thinking, I am getting paid to fuck about on a golf course in Florida just for a laugh. I am going to just really ham it up. And he is, uh, you know, if people just kind of look for gifts of his dancing in the film, it is really quite something to behold. Mm. Here's an interesting uh, fact for you um, that I found in my research today. Um, it's Tiger Woods' favourite film. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't surprise me. I think it's often voted as like the mo- the best golf film of all time, which is interesting. Probably, yeah. I mean, it's great, but I, I kind of very rarely think of it as a golf film. Yeah, it's not a very heavily, but I think it, it, that's just more the fact that it's between that and like the Legend of Bag of Ants. I think if those are your two uh, choices, Tin Cup's a good golf film. Oh yeah, Tin Cup's good. Ron Shelton, who uh, who we've talked about in the past, yeah. It's it's um, it's, a, it's a sport that is pretty underserved, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a go- Kelly Shakes a golf film in the same way that Police Academy is a procedural. <laughs> um, in in that kind of it's not it's, yeah it's more about the goofs really mm. and uh, yeah Chevy Chase um, was on a bit of a streak back then. Um, uh, I would have loved to include Fletch in this list, but you know Kelly Shack can take it. Um, I always still um, if ever I go any kind of go- I play play golf with my friends maybe once a year and I say golf i mean like we go to the kitchen putt and uh, we kind of knock it around a bit but every time every time without fail someone's on the green someone's like be the ball send it home 
Uh, send the ball to his home, just like that is now <laughs> uh, standard golf coaching uh, from Chevy Chase. Uh, that's the only way to do it. I think Happy Gilmore probably runs it close as to being the kind of most fun golf comedy. Yeah, it, it helps that it's a game that has such little action that it's very <laughs> easy to fill in the blanks with just kind of nonsense. Uh, and, and someone like uh, Chevy Chase, who is very good at being... Uh, kind of weirdly intense for no good reason uh, is is very well suited to the idea of someone who's really into this game uh, we, but really is kind of just in it to kind of sleep with women <laughs> that's clearly the only thing he really cares about mm. hey, no wonder uh, Tiger Woods likes it so much <laughs> we found there the connection go, there you go <laughs> that's biting satire that's three years too late um, yeah so Caddyshack uh, it finds itself on this list for some real heavyweights. Do, do you think? I suppose, do you think that it is inadvertently one of the most in, uh, influential comedies, certainly in terms of modern comedy? Because you can really see um, the roots of that in something like Anchorman and the kind of the Apatow, uh, kind of very heavily influ- improvised comedies that have sort of a very kind of basic framework. Yeah, in the in the sense that. Um, they will have a, a basic framework, but the difference being between that and perhaps the work of Adam Sandler is they will get good personnel <laughs> and uh, and at least have some kind of cohesion to it. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think that's and you know it's no coincidence that all those guys making those films are the age that they would have seen that Caddyshack and Fletch and and uh, all those kind of films at you know at the perfect time, and it's no surprise that they are influential on them. Yeah, I think I think it's one of the ones that really does that formless yet uh, still reasonably plotted uh, balance well because there is a lot of stuff in there that has nothing to do with golf, has very little to do with working at a golf course, which I think is mm-hmm. is kind of what it's going for. I think in the same way that uh, maybe Animal House was about the experiences of being at college in the sixties, uh, that. Uh, that uh, Caddyshack is about what it's like to be on a golf course, but at a certain point it just becomes weird and absurdist and has very little to do with that premise. And I think that, that, that you can really see that in Anchorman, which is yeah. it kind of does the same sort of thing, but obviously pushes it to an even more kind of ludicrous extreme. Mm, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, like I said, you're not going to find many examples where Caddyshack will sit so firmly alongside <laughs> uh, uh, Sweet Smell of Success and Paris, Texas. Um, but this is the alternate 100. You know, this is what everyone's welcome, you know? Yeah, we we have no, uh, we have no uh, discrimination against anything based on genre or uh, perceived quality. Mm, yeah. Or yeah, perceived weightiness. It. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's your 10 films for part four. Um, uh, I think we're going to run straight into part five next week, aren't we? Ed? Yeah, we're going to kind of try and bang these out and get them all done by December. Yeah, yeah. What a, what a kind of ambitious thing that might be. Um, foolish, foolhardy. <laughs> um, yeah, if you've enjoyed the show, uh, then yeah, uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, we're now on that service, and uh, if you are listening on either of those, give us a review. Uh, that'd be really awesome, especially if it's positive. Um, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and all that guff. 
Um, so until the next episode, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.